0: We read from the Holy Scriptures this evening, from the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Our text is found in the last three verses, verses 20 through 22 of this chapter. We hear the Word of God in Ephesians, chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the loss of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them which that were nigh. For through him we both have access, by one spirit unto God the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Here we have the words of our text, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth. Unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Thus far, we read from God's infallibly inspired word. As I said, we have our text in those last three verses, Ephesians 2, verses 20 through 22. Beloved congregation, in our Lord Jesus Christ, do you love the church? Love for the church is a mark of the Christian. Devotion to the church of Jesus Christ is the duty as well as the privilege given to us as God's children the reason for this is to be found in what the church is. She is the bride of Christ. She is the dwelling place of God. She is the mother of believers. She is the body of Christ. You, Grace Protestant Reformed Church, are a manifestation of that body. Therefore, the believer in Christ loves the church even as he loves Christ. We give expression to that love as we gather on the Lord's Day and sing from Psalm 84. How lovely, Lord of hosts, to me the tabernacles of thy grace. So how I long, yea, faint to see thy hallowed courts, thy dwelling place. Think of Psalm 137, the mournful cry of the captives in Babylon who sat down and wept as they remembered Zion. Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. Her honor lay in the dust. Her people were scattered. The public worship of Jehovah on Mount Zion had been abolished their captors jeeringly required of them a song of mirth and joy and yet their harps could not comply there was no mirth no joy possible while they were separated from Zion the church in Babylon they made a vow O Zion fair God's holy hill wherein our God delights to dwell let my right hand Forget her skill, if I forget to love thee well, let my tongue from utterance cease. If any earthly joy to me be dear as Zion's joy and peace. Already centuries before our text was written, the inspired psalmist also sang, Zion founded On the mountains God thy maker loves thee well. He has chosen thee most precious. He delights in thee to dwell. God's own city. Who can all thy glory tell? And this is really the theme of the whole letter to the Ephesians. The glory of the church in Christ. Paul has already described that. And he began with his apostolic benediction and then adds, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And that's the key in Christ. In Christ Jesus, that runs through the whole of this epistle always showing forth the glory of God as it's reflected by us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have, in the beginning of the second chapter, that well-known contrast. And you but God. The apostle describes our natural depravity as we are conceived and born in sin, reminding us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, a part of this present evil world under the power of Satan, fulfilling the desires and lusts of the flesh, by nature, children of wrath, even as all the rest. And then, thanks be to God, you have that great contrast. But... God, rich in mercy, motivated by his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive and raised us with Christ and even exalted us with him in heavenly glory. In Christ, all our salvation is complete and eternally secure. Paul goes on to describe another great wonder. Reminds us of the distinction between Jew and Gentile. For even while God was gathering in his elect from the Jews, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Notice, having no hope and without God in the world, Can you imagine anything worse than that? No hope without God in the world. But God now gathers his elect also from the Gentiles so that we who were afar off are brought near. That middle wall of separation is broken down. So that we are no more strangers and foreigners, but we are fellow citizens belonging to the same household of God. For Jew and Gentile alike, for all God's elect, there is that divine assurance, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And the Apostle Paul is given to see... God's church God's elect holy catholic church he sees that church as she is being gathered in this present time as we are members of it and as we as congregation are a manifestation of it and as we are used by God toward The ingathering of his own and the completion of his church or his house, even in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this light that we consider our text this evening under the theme, Building the House of God. And we notice, first of all, that house, secondly, the foundation, and finally, the construction The apostle here is plainly using a figure and yet at the same time he applies the figure immediately to the reality. He uses the figure of the foundation and explains that this foundation is the apostles and prophets. He refers to the cornerstone and immediately adds that this is Christ Jesus. He speaks of the house built upon the foundation fitly framed together and points out to us that this house is the dwelling place of God, his habitation, where he dwells through the spirit. And then he concludes that we also are set into that building as separate stones, each in our place, yet together making that perfect unity of the church the house of God. No doubt the Apostle Paul had in mind the temple of the old dispensation. The temple was the center of Israel's typical worship. Canaan was the promised land flowing with milk and honey but The center of Canaan was Jerusalem, the holy city. And the heart of the holy city was the temple where God dwelled behind the veil in the most holy place. And there at the temple stood the altar of burnt offering as a constant reminder that Israel was a sinful people. And yet at the same time, That altar symbolized the blood of atonement that took away the sins of the people. Christ was represented there in the priest as well as in the sacrifice, the lamb. And through Christ, the people had access to their God. There, God's people experienced blessed covenant fellowship with the only true and living God, there they experienced and lived in that bond of faith that united them in the Lord, even as they looked forward in hope for the better things to come, for they, the church, were after all the house, the dwelling place of God. God was in the midst of them, and therefore they stood unmoved. And with this figure in mind, the apostle speaks of a building that's under construction. It's gradually taking shape as every stone is put in its own place, each one fitting in with all the other stones and with all the rest of the building ultimately to reveal its complete and perfect unity In Christ. And forgetting the figure for a moment and bearing in mind that these are not dead but living stones, the apostle feels free to say that this building grows like a plant grows, grows to its full capacity, or to go back to the figure again, grows into an immense and beautiful temple of God. There are certain details about this building that we should notice. First of all, of course, a building calls for a plan. Even when we desire to erect a church building or to build a house, we carefully prepare the plans. We likely hire an architect to draw up the prints of our proposed structure so that every detail of the house may be worked out beforehand, even to the most minute parts. We plan the size and the shape of the building, the number of doors and windows, the location of each. We determine the various rooms and their size. We decide on the various materials that are to be used In construction even down to the electrical outlets and the heating and cooling units and every detail it's all done before any real work is started before even the foundation is laid this is of course but a vague earthly picture of God's sovereign and eternal predestination of his church eternally God has before him his glorious house as it will be realized in all its perfection in the new creation we cannot say that God made those plans for his house or that he gradually formulated them in his mind as if there were a span in eternity when God was without the perfect house that he builds, God does not change, nor does God grow richer in carrying out his eternal thoughts according to the purpose of his will. The sovereign architect eternally has before him his Christ, the great servant in his house, and in Christ he has before him, even in his heart and mind, his church, Chosen in Christ unto everlasting life. God has chosen Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the eternal cause and the ultimate purpose of all of his wondrous works. Who but the Son, the perfect likeness and reflection of the Father's glory could hold such a unique place in the mind of God. God gave to Christ a people chosen in him to show forth the praises of God's name. That people consists of a definite number of elect. No more, no less. Each one chosen to have his or her own place in the church of God. Christ is the head we are the members of his body and as the head cannot exist without the body so the body cannot consist exist without the head christ is the cornerstone we are the stones of god's temple each one fits into his or her own place according to eternal divine wisdom, and no one else could fit in that place. Without each place being filled, the temple would not be complete. Its unity, its harmony, its beauty would be spoiled. God would not attain his glory. But don't forget. That also applies to the scaffolding of the building. God sovereignly chooses his people unto everlasting life, but he also determines the reprobate to perish in their sins. And even the reprobate must serve their purpose toward the construction of God's temple. As scripture teaches, that they as the chaff, must serve the wheat. In spite of themselves, they are scaffolding used by God during this present time to erect his church. At present, we can sometimes have difficulty even distinguishing between the building and the scaffolding, but God knows his own ultimately the scaffolding is pulled away and burned and the building stands forth in all of its splendor to the praise of the master builder, the almighty, sovereign God. Further, we must notice that the church of God answers perfectly to the plans and purposes of the architect in unity and harmony perfection beauty and here beloved especially we must not regard the things that we see with these physical eyes but we must look with the eye of faith upon the things we do not see in faith based upon scripture We confess, as we did again this evening, an holy Catholic church. And that bears emphasis, as never before, the very idea of an holy Catholic church as taught in the scriptures and our confessions, and specifically here in our text. The idea is ridiculed, scorned, despised, shameful things, are spoken of this church in her true spiritual essence. Often an outward, superficial unity is sought, which may consist of all kinds of federations, so that numerically the church may be strong and pretentious in the midst of this world, The antithetical position of the church over against the world of unbelief is denied and compromise with the world is sought. And much of the church busies herself with a social agenda and political affairs rather than with her spiritual distinction and purity. And by doing that, the so-called church ultimately becomes the great harlot, riding on the red beast, directing and cooperating with the Antichrist. The faithful church becomes more and more the object of mockery and hatred of the world and is numerically small in comparison and weak becomes more and more antithetically opposed to the world even as light opposes the darkness. The true spiritual distinction becomes ever more evident and the individual members of the church become ever more strangers and pilgrims here seeking with increasing longing her heavenly perfection more and more we see it today as never before the place of the faithful church is small in the earth the world has tolerance for everyone and everything except the faithful church of Christ yet the church is holy, even as a temple is holy. The individual believer is redeemed and justified and sanctified in Christ so that Scripture does not hesitate to say that those who are born of God are without sin. Still more, they are citizens of that heavenly kingdom, heirs of the life to come. They are the family of God his sons and daughters adopted through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ they are Christ's holy bride together stones of his temple and so they are also addressed as saints in Christ Jesus that's our comfort is it not Even while we are deeply conscious of our own sins from day to day, of our guilt, yea, our misery, and even as we are often scorned in the midst of this world, and the church is one. The generations of the elect may extend from paradise in the beginning to the end of history. God's people may be gathered as they are from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Outwardly, there may often seem to be more division than unity among them as they are torn apart by sin and by the evil threats and attacks of Satan yet they are one in Christ. With one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord united unto one God to whom we bring glory forever. And therefore there is also a very blessed communion of saints. There's that common bond of faith that unites us as true people of God. We're drawn to one another. We seek the welfare of each other through that common bond of faith. We can sincerely say, this is my father. This is my mother. These are my brothers. These are my sisters who do the will of my heavenly father. In that love, we strive to bear each other's burdens in the love of Christ. Still, too, we must notice that this building referred to in our text is a temple. The temple of God. A temple can impress you because of its size, its architecture, its beauty and majesty. All this is certainly true of the temple of our God, as will Become evident in the new creation when that multitude which no man can number is gathered and united as the saints in Christ before the throne of God. But the real importance of the temple is the fact that it is the house of God, His habitation. God dwells there, God is the light that radiates throughout the temple. God's glory shines through every part of the building so that our text speaks of a habitation of God. It stresses that the church is God's home, and God's home means, in a word, fellowship. There we experience the covenant fellowship of God and his people in Christ, There is the intimate communion of life that is reflected here on earth in the relationships of family, husband and wife, parents and children. God is in the midst of her. No wonder that the psalmist almost shouted in ecstasy, glorious things of thee are spoken, city, Blessed of God the Lord. Truly glorious things. For we, beloved, are God's house, God's dwelling place, chosen, prepared to show forth His praises even forever. And though the main thought of our text centers around. This house, this temple, strong emphasis is also laid upon the foundation and especially upon the cornerstone without which the house of God could never exist and certainly couldn't arise to its ultimate perfection. And so our attention is focused now upon the cornerstone. This figure appears more often in the New Testament scriptures along with the figure of the temple, and it's taken, no doubt, from Psalm 118. There we read of that stone which the builders refused, and how it became the head of the corner. And it stands out as something so marvelous in our eyes. Just because it is so obviously Jehovah's work, his alone, as a wonder of grace. And it's not so difficult to visualize this picture. Here among all the various materials that were collected together for the building of Solomon's temple was one large Seemingly cumbersome stone. And it doesn't doesn't fit with the plans of the builders. It always seems to be in the way. It seems to interfere with all their reckonings. This stone never fits until the builders learn that it is the chief cornerstone, chosen of God and precious And that, of course, was prophecy. And its real fulfillment came when Annas and Caiaphas, along with Judas Iscariot and Herod and Pilate, even with the Sanhedrin, and all the people joined together to condemn Jesus to that accursed death of the cross. They found no place in their idea of the church for Jesus, not the Christ of the scriptures, no more than do the modernists of our times. But even though they gave him over unto that shameful death and curse, God justified him, raised him from the dead, exalted him even at his own right hand, giving him a name which is above every name. Even as the head of the church in the highest heavens, he is the cornerstone. A cornerstone in ancient times was a very important part of the foundation and therefore also of the entire structure. Today, a cornerstone is mainly symbolic, a mere ornament. But according to the figure as it's used in the scriptures, it's a stone upon which that entire building rests, And all the other foundation stones lean toward that one massive cornerstone so that that one stone gave stability and unity and even beauty to the entire building. Christ, Scripture tells us, is that cornerstone. He is chosen of God as the elect, the firstborn among many brethren, God chose us in Christ. He sees us in Christ. He blesses us in Christ. Joins us to him in perfect unity eternally. Christ is the rock upon which we are founded. It's true in the most absolute sense of the word. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is made unto us of God wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and, in one word, redemption. Our life is hid with Christ in God. As we said before, we can speak of a holy church because we are holy in Christ. We can speak of a Catholic Church because our unity is in Christ. He is the fullness of all our life and salvation. But besides the cornerstone there is also mention of the foundation and this foundation is referred to as The foundation of the apostles and prophets now there's some difference of opinion whether the term prophets here refers to the prophets of the Old Testament times or to those prophets who were there in the early church you can make arguments to defend either position without going into detail I'm inclined to think here of the prophets of the old dispensation it's true, as some would point out, that the apostles are mentioned first, and then the prophets. While in order of time, the prophet, the prophets were first in the Old Testament, certainly. But writing to the church of the new dispensation, Paul could very well refer to the apostles first because they proclaimed the fulfillment of the promises spoken by the prophets of old, and surely the prophets of the old dispensation are as much the foundation of the church as are the apostles of the new. But the more important question arises, what is meant by these apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church? Surely it cannot refer to them simply as individual persons, but rather it does refer to them in their office or in their capacity as prophets and apostles. As such, they were the bearers of the word of God. God filled them "...with the Spirit of Christ, so that Christ, the great office-bearer, spoke through them." And that which they spoke, we have infallibly recorded in and preserved for us in the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. These Scriptures, therefore, are the foundation of the Church." It's more evident from the fact that the scriptures reveal to us, from Genesis 1 verse 1 to the end of Revelation, they reveal Christ. Christ is revealed. Christ who is the rock, the cornerstone upon which the church rests and from which it has all its existence we can't emphasize too strongly today that the infallibly inspired word of God as we have it in the scriptures is the foundation of the church as you know many deny the inspiration of the Bible an infallible Bible they want no Objective truth. And so they deny the truth as it's set forth in the scriptures. They want no objective word. So that God becomes whatever we happen to think he is. And Christ likewise becomes a figment of the imagination. And faith is just personal feeling or experience and then you've really lost everything absolutely all that is of any real value in life. Because from this results the sad tragedy that the power of that word of God is denied and the church institute means nothing anymore. We see it, increasingly, no commitment to the institute of the church. People may call themselves religious or spiritual, but want nothing to do with the church. Then the preaching of the word is often neglected, even replaced, a dialogue. Discussion, movie, play, liturgical dance, all kinds of things are considered far more effective than that old-fashioned preaching of the word. And then, to the offices in the church mean nothing. Christ's word of power means nothing, so that all that remains is a form of godliness lacking the very power of the Spirit of Christ. Beloved, we must maintain that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The infallibly inspired word of God is the only sure foundation. The faithful preaching of that word, no matter how it may be ridiculed, must be maintained as the divinely given means of grace together with the proper administration of the sacraments Christ refuses to work through any other means must always go back to the word, the law and the prophets, the word of God where there's no hope the word of God is the only foundation upon which God Builds his church. And finally, we have to consider the building itself, the construction of this house. Our text speaks of that too as a process that's being carried on throughout history, even to the end of time. And it's important to notice, first of all, of course, the builder, and we emphasize at the outset the builder is not man, oh, how people would like to take matters into their own hands and seek their own means to supposedly gather the church how they would like to take credit for supposedly winning souls for Jesus but God is the only builder that's the plain teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21 question 54 there we are asked what believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ and the answer is given The Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof in harmony with scripture which stresses throughout that the Lord builds his church God builds his church through his dear son our Lord Jesus Christ it's always Christ who is now at the right hand of God who knows his sheep and calls them by name and they come to him he speaks of other sheep that he has, apart from the elect Jews, which he must also gather in so that there will be eternally one flock, one fold. Jesus is the chief shepherd of his sheep, gathers them by his word and spirit. Again, it's the preaching of the word through the working of the spirit in the hearts of the elect, There can be no preaching except Christ calls. Those whom he calls are official ambassadors of God through whom his spirit works. We must maintain the official preaching of the word, the official administration of the sacraments. Office bearers who bring the word faithfully in their respective offices, speaking and acting in Christ's name. No other way, no other means of grace, Christ refuses to work in any other way. And so we, beloved, must be busy in prayer that God will raise up men for the ministry of the gospel in our midst The need is great. And then our text becomes very personal. And it speaks, first of all, of the fact that each of us is builded together for a home of God in the Spirit. The Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, calls us out of darkness into light, works faith within our hearts, justifies, sanctifies, preserves us in living hope, even unto the day of our perfect salvation. It's always the power, that living power of Christ that works within the hearts of his own so that we live yet no more we, but Christ lives in us. And each one of us grows, as it were, into our own place in the body. It's striking. And each of us ought to respect and appreciate each other in the particular place that God gives us. Must honor and appreciate our diversity. Each one, each stone in this temple is unique. has various gifts and abilities, various strengths and weaknesses. That doesn't mean that we overlook sin or error, but it means that we deal with it in the right way according to Scripture and the church order. It means that we are ready to forgive one another. It means that we bear with each other's weaknesses For each of us is united with all the other members of the body in intimate fellowship and love. And each of us is being chipped and ground and polished for our own place in God's temple, the place that only we can occupy Pretty soon when we're ready for that place and that place is ready for us, heaven cannot wait. And we're transferred out of the church militant here on earth into our own place in the church triumphant before the throne. In addition, we as willing instruments by his grace are called to be busy. Now, working the work of the Lord toward the construction of his house. Men, women, young people, even children, each in our place, seeking to serve our God and his church as willing instruments in God's hand. He's the builder, remember. We are but instruments in his hand, prayerfully seeking to carry out his will. And the work we do in the church may seem so very insignificant, so insignificant, in fact, that it may appear to have no real or lasting value in the completion of that great temple of our God. Think of David. He would be but a doorkeeper in the house of his God. And yet, however small and insignificant we may seem in the eyes of men, God is pleased to carry out his work, even through us. And let us therefore, day by day, labor prayerfully that we may together serve to the praise of the glory, of the grace of him who has called us. And so, beloved, I ask again, do you love the church? John Calvin, the great reformer, remarked in his Institutes that no one can claim to have God for his father unless he has the church as his mother. Make no mistake, the church is where Christ is, and Christ is where the Word is faithfully preached and maintained. Don't doubt the power and sufficiency of the preaching of the Word. Today, people fear that the Word can't gather the church. They fear that the preaching of the Word cannot keep the youth They fear that the word cannot comfort and strengthen God's people in all their needs. They fear that the word can't stand the test of so-called science. They fear that scholars will disapprove of that word and mock them. Be not deceived. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Christ and Him crucified is still the power of God and the wisdom of God. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified is still the way of demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Let us then seek and ever abide in the faithful church, beloved, and love that church, love this church, Let us never forget that love for the church is as a seed that is sown. Sown in love, it sprouts and brings forth fruit, a blessed fruit. But understand that when we sow in disgust and contempt for God's church, another kind of fruit is produced. A bitter fruit but when love for the church fills our homes our congregation our churches sister churches the church of Christ throughout the world and that love for the church dominates in our lives then by God's grace we will see blessed fruit joyful sons and daughters singing with us blessed Zion all our fountains are in thee amen most merciful and gracious heavenly father we thank thee for thy word thy word of truth the scriptures and the preaching thereof which are the foundation of thy church leaning upon that chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And what a wonder that we, our children, might be builded up living stones in that temple. We can but give praise and thanksgiving unto thy name, which we know we shall with all the saints, even forever. Hasten the day of the return of our Savior, our husband. We, his bride, are eager for his coming. Forgive us of our sins in his name. Amen.